Warning. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of clout struggles. This can't be right, right? Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is proudly brought to you by subtly changing the expression of your opinion to appease those around you that have more clout, prestige, or power than you. And I think X. Do any of my admirers agree? Well, yes, I do. I like X too, sir. Because I noticed you said something a little bit like Y yesterday. I guess what it is is I like both X and Y in different ways and relative strengths and differences. And then based on the context that I'm in, I'll emphasize different things based on what I sort of perceive as the relative power level of the people I'm trying to like impress or make an impression on. So bleh, people don't usually say stuff like that. People don't usually put it all out there. Well, hopefully that's charming. It's like sort of a charming thing. You've charmed me successfully. Subtly changing your opinion to better impress those around you with more clout, prestige, or power than you. Everyone does it. Brad, sponsor of the show. You get those assless chaps? Men without asses? <laughs> just a concave. It's an assless chap? How do you poo? Well, there's still a hole. They just don't have the ass, the There's cheeks no proper part. ass around it. Yeah. Welcome to the Seriously Wrong Podcast, everyone. We are the wrong boys. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sean. We're here doing this podcast because we're hoping that it will give us clout in your eyes. We are doing this to be popular. We're doing it to be respected. I think wanting to have a good reputation, at least with a small group of people, is fundamentally human. Like To not want that or not think about that at all is dysfunctional. Yeah, it's a basic human need to have respect from other people. Like if everyone treats you with no respect, you're going to be psychologically unwell because we're social species and we need affirmation from other people in order to be well. like And there could be a really dysfunctional form of clout chasing where your desire for social approval is making you behave in ways that ultimately are antisocial in some way. Like, this is the extreme on the other side. But everyone really, like, at least in a limited context, and whether that's your family or a small group of friends, even people who are sort of loners, introverts and stuff, you need to know that you're in some way esteemed, that you're considered useful, to serve a purpose within a social fabric. Like, these are all very fundamental things. It's interesting to me how this term clout has become part of the sphere of discussion right now, because it does kind of, I, th I think it's mostly associated with this thing you mentioned, a, a kind of negative reputation seeking that is purely or only for the purpose of self-aggrandizement. Like, I think that's the core of the criticism, like you're only doing something to become popular, you're only doing something to get clout, is different from, I'm doing something good because I love to do good things. And if clout comes with that, sure. But I don't know. This is one reason this topic's really interesting to me because there is this double nature to it where it's reputation is something that's inescapably part of social species. Seeking reputation is something that's inescapable, but also seeking reputation can lead to these really sort of pathological tendencies. And if something is inescapable, like reputation seeking, then is the pathological version of it also inescapable? I mean, I want to say that like, no, it's not inevitable that you have these dysfunctional forms of clout chasing or like what I've been recently in my head been calling the clout cult, which is like this collection of sort of related dysfunctional social behaviors that is associated with, in particular, online leftism and the way that people are increasingly speaking in dismissive bumper stickers. Yeah, snark. Another episode we did recently. Snark is a, a weapon in clout wars. It's a way to position yourself as above other people. They're below you and you're above them. And that, that is clout. It's this hierarchical social reputation game. Yeah. And I actually, I think that's really the meaty 
critique of clout. What you were mentioning before, as far as like the only being interested in clout and not like sort of the underlying ethics of it, mm-hmm. like that's definitely a component to it. And it sort of dovetails with the virtue signaling argument that you see from like yeah. anti-social justice people. And also fits into this sort of like French revolutionary idea of virtue. And just a quick shout out to our patrons who donate every month $6 to keep the show going. Thank you so much for doing that. We've got a two-part episode on the French Revolution for anyone who donates. Thanks to everyone who's already doing that. And feel free to chip in on Patreon if you want to join the legion of beautiful geniuses that make this show possible. We talk about this subject of French revolutionary virtue in more detail. But it sort of dovetails with this French revolutionary virtue that says... That there's a distinction between duplicitous and virtue, openness and hiddenness, and that to seek reputation for itself, even through virtue, is perhaps a sign of unvirtuousness. And so we need to interrogate the people who are claiming to be virtuous and getting clout for it. This is an idea that has deep connections to the French revolutionary virtue logic that's with us to this day, not just in politics for like politicians, like electoral politics to say, oh, you represent us. We have a right to know what you're doing. You have to listen to us, that sort of stuff. But then also when you're talking about like a politician in a broader sense, like not an electoral politician, but an individual who's a participant in politics, who's a public figure, I can sort of consider all these people politicians in a sense where their capacity to influence is tied up in their clout. It's tied up in the way that they're perceived. And so they have these incentives to maintain and grow their clout through the performance of ethics. Like if you fully don't have a commitment and it's 100% cynical, I can see like that's obviously a problem. But but I think that's more of a red herring than anything else in general. I think most people, when they do good things, are thinking both at the same time that this thing is good and that it makes me a better person and people will like me for it. And you can't easily separate those things out those aren't two separate experiences for people they're part of the same experience that's how we experience doing good things it's like it's good for them and it makes me a better person i don't think you can really have one without the other unless you have a really sort of unique psychology or something and that's exactly what the french revolutionary virtue logic or as i would call it like revolutionary liberal logic rev lib Right. Sentiment <laughs> says that you have to pull them apart. You have an ethical requirement to not care whether or not people like what you're doing that's ethical. You know, like that's sort of like this underlying assumption yeah, within a lot of also, politics. And it's totally dysfunctional. It makes no sense. Yeah, it makes no sense because if everyone dislikes what you're doing, that's a really good social signal that it's not actually as good as you think it is. Like, I mean, maybe you're the one true, intelligent, moral person standing up against the wave of moral decadence out there or whatever. But I mean, it's it's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And you're the only one. You're the joker against society. (laughs) Joker. exactly. (laughs) So in addition to people seeking clout through ethics without committing to the underlying ethics, which I think is part of the critique here, I think another big part of the critique is this idea of not just mutual appreciation or even uneven, but generally distributed appreciation for people's contributions, which I think is part of a healthy egalitarian politic, but the interjection of hierarchy in it where there's an artificial scarcity of virtue, there's an artificial scarcity of social value and prestige, and that you don't just gain clout by doing good things, you gain clout by pointing out that other people have failed to do good things and that you vampirically take people's clout by shouting them down or calling them out or that sort of thing. It's like a video game, like you bop them and all their coins go everywhere and like you can collect yeah, a bunch of their coins. you pick up all their coins. And, yeah. yeah. But then it's also like other people are showering more coins on you with like, oh, that was so great how you own this person. The thing I like about the word clout and not that it's a new word but it's resurgent in in online discussions is that it is taking these social dynamics that exist to various degrees in almost any social group you can think of and it's making them explicit kind of like self-awarely smirking and saying i'm just here seeking clout like i'm new here what do i got to do to get clout like that kind of stuff i think is really healthy. It's a kind of social self-awareness that people are talking about this. Like, I think to some degree, there is a scarcity of reputation or a scarcity of social prestige because not everyone can 
have the same amount of prestige as everyone else. Like, not that there's a fundamentally limited amount, but there will always be unequal distributions of it. And if you're not talking about that in an explicit way, then it's happening in the background. It's like it's a common critique of anarchism in the sense of like who holds power. They say things like, oh, if you try to abolish all hierarchies, you get these hidden unspoken hierarchies that are actually even more destructive because people aren't saying exactly what they are. And so like it's harder to navigate a hierarchy that everyone is pretending isn't actually there or nobody's talking about. So the way this like sort of internet meme has become reflexive, looking back on internet culture and what's been going on in internet culture and the way that snark is weaponized to steal people's clout, knock the coins out of them and collect them all up is a healthy sort of introspection. You mentioned that you thought it was true to a degree that there's a limited amount of social prestige, there's a limited amount of clout to be distributed. And it's true in a sense, but I think taking like sort of a social ecologist perspective on scarcity, part of the idea of post-scarcity isn't that there is or should be unlimited of everything in all circumstances, but rather that functionally we do have in many cases and we're capable of developing in other cases a functional lack of scarcity for things that are needed. So you could maybe even frame it in terms of like a universal basic clout, dignity, people right. might historically call that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> At least as to how I'm thinking about this, I want to almost separate that out. Not that I think it's a different thing, like not providing someone with a basic amount of dignity is like, it's like you're not just neutral. It's not just that you have no clout. It's that you have negative clout in a sense. I think it's like fully possible and there's no scarcity of dignity inherently in any way. Like it is totally possible to create a social situation where it's a norm that people are treated with basic human dignity no matter what, whether you made the greatest scientific breakthrough of the 22nd century or you stayed at home and took LSD and jerked off for a year. Wait, and those are both references to specific people who are listening to the show right now. And, and you know who you are. <laughs> That's possible. But it's really hard to say that and it's absurd to say that everyone is going to be popular. Not even that everyone's going to be the same amount of popular, but that everyone's going to be popular at all. You know, just bring it even down to like Twitter accounts and how many followers you have or how many retweets you get, how many likes you get on your tweets. It's going to depend on how entertaining and funny your tweets are. It's going to depend on how many other people who have lots of followers retweet the things you say. Like it could be both elements of what you're presenting and elements of the social sphere around you, but you're not going to create a situation where there isn't this kind of difference in this potential envy and looking on others who have more than you or pity for people who have less, this, this hierarchical element that comes with scarcity and unequal distribution. When I think of universal basic clout, I don't think of that meaning that everyone gets at least 10 likes on their tweets or something like that. <laughs> right. I, I don't think that's a meaningful... I'm thinking of something specific and maybe we could separate it from clout, like you're saying. But like for some people, depending on your level of like public engagement and the amount of people you meet and talk to and influence and touch the lives of in various ways, there's going to be a lot of people who have a neutral or non-existent a reputation with the vast majority of people. I mean, everyone's in that position, but some people's vast majority is bigger than others. If there's 300 people who who know who you are and have an opinion on you, then, I mean, there's still 7 billion who don't. And, <laughs> right. and if there's 3,000 that know who you are and have an opinion, there's still 7 billion that don't. Mm. But I'm thinking about like feeling esteemed and knowing that you're valued. And this ties into dignity. Knowing that you belong in the world is not something that everyone has or it's something that sometimes people struggle with yeah, like really yeah. feeling like they belong in the world and i think community even small communities that can convince people that they do belong in the world and that they have value 
and that their value isn't contingent on production or getting 10 likes on their tweet. Their value is not contingent on even being excessively useful or something like that. But there's some esteem that they have with some small group of people that everyone deserves time and attention from someone. Everyone deserves friends. Everyone deserves to not be alone and know that there's room for them and they're welcome and their voice is welcome. And that's what I'm thinking of when I think about universal basic clout. We now go to the year 2034 in the free socialist republic of Canada, where the triumvirate of two presidents and a prime minister respectively have instituted a guaranteed basic popularity. We now go to the residence of a shut-in named Matthew as he's first approached by his government-assigned friend. I don't want any religion. Just Matthew, please leave Matthew, me alone. is that you? Yes. Who's asking? Well, my name is Christopher Matthew. Your name's it's a Christopher to meet Matthew. You. Do you mind opening the door? Oh, you're no, saying you're the, Christopher, comma, Matthew. Yeah, there's a comma there. You can't hear me through the door. That's that's half the problem. You're here. from the government? I've paid my taxes. Sure have, Matthew. So you can leave. I'm here actually as part of, you might have heard on the radio, TV, internet. There you is... Don't pay attention to those things. <laughs> Matthew. Matthew, you march to the beat of your own drum, and I like that. I'm from the Department of Friendship, and I've actually been assigned to you as your professional friend. I'm your friend. We're friends now. No, I don't have any friends. Kind of a lone wolf. Matthew, lone wolf. That's cool. I like to watch all my old DVDs. Well, I'm going to ask you a question, Matthew. Do you have even a single DVD about one person by themselves? Does a comedian alone on a stage count? Absolutely not. There's a big audience there, Matthew. Here, I'll just give you the quick wrap on what my job is. I'm here for you. I want to give you my phone number. I'll swing by every now and then. Six hours a week, you can distribute that across different days if you want. Do it all at once. Save it up for a day trip every two weeks, whatever. And I'm here to listen to you, support you, give advice. What are friends for? That's what I'm for. I don't have friends. I've never had friends. Nobody's ever liked me. Matthew, I'm going to be honest. I like you. You don't really know me. Well, fair enough. It's true. And I'm not saying I really know you. That's not what I've claimed at all. I'm saying I like you. Okay. I like people who don't do a lot of socialization, sort of curmudgeonly vibe. And I hope that's okay for me to say. And I do hope to get feedback if you don't want to be referred to that way. But I like it. It's really different than me, but I find it complimentary. Are you being paid to be here? Yes. Yes, it is my job. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Think about it this way. I am a professional friend. Being a friend is a skill set, just like anything. And I exceed at those skill sets, and I am remunerated for the friendship that I distribute to those in need. There's nothing abnormal about that if you really chew on it. What if I don't like you? Do I have to be your friend? What if I just want to keep watching DVDs by myself? You do have that option. You can say, hey, look, don't swing by this week. Could I switch you out for someone else if I don't like you? You do have that option, and I'd hope that you give me a shot first, because I feel like we're hitting it off. So you're saying that if I wanted to spend an hour telling you about why I don't like Blu-rays, I don't like 1080p, I don't like 4K, I like DVDs, that's the right amount of resolution, everything else is too crisp, you would listen to me for one hour? Frankly, that sounds sincerely fascinating. How about this? I'm free right now. And if you want to say, we could go for a walk, an hour, and then we'll see if it's the right fit for you. What we find is a lot of people, at first, they're skeptical. They're like, this is fake. You don't really like me. No one likes me, blah, blah, blah. And then they go out and they do it. And at the end, they're saying, that was great. Fine. Yes, Matthew. I don't have to be as enthusiastic as you, do I? I hope that you are not, because I like you just the way you are. Okay, yeah, let's go for a walk. Uh, I just need to find my outside shoes. I haven't used them in a while. Here, you can come in. You can sit in my chair. Oh, that's really nice of you. That's a really nice poster of the DVD logo. I haven't seen that logo in a while. Is that custom? Yeah, actually, I designed that myself. Not the DVD logo, obviously, but I chose the tint of the background, and I centered the logo, and I sent it away to a poster-making outfit online. They mailed it to me. That is really cool. So do you own any DVDs? Yeah, yeah. Most of them are in a box in my garage. We're on the Blu-ray train now. And obviously also direct digital is huge. Streaming? Me and Chris, we ended up hanging out for three hours that day. He listened attentively as I explained all of the problems with Blu-ray and didn't even have time to get started on 3D, but I 
hadn't really realized just how lonely I was. Like, I mean, I knew I was alone, but when you haven't had friends your whole life, it's just kind of normal to you, and you don't really know exactly what you're missing. And Chris showed me what I was missing, and Chris helped me feel like I belonged in the world for the first time in my life. Still watch a lot of DVDs. It's not going to change, but it was good. I support the government universal basic popularity program now. And gentlemen, that is just one of hundreds of testimonies from our pilot program. It's working. It's incredible. So do we have the votes we need to get this through the Senate? You have my vote. Just needed one more vote. Thank you, Representative from Delaware. And I guess that's the end of this little saga, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's the end of the saga. I mean, who knows what's next for Ameri-Mexa Canada, but this is a fresh, bold new step. Guaranteed basic friends. It's a good idea whose time has come. I think ultimately we need to sort of draw a distinction, and we, we, we are drawing a distinction already, between two modes and interpretations of the functional concepts underlying clout, one of which is a very competition-heavy, scarcity-based, competitive, negative, in many cases cruel clout regime, clout right. ideology that we carry, and then a more egalitarian distributed and realistic idea of clout that says that like yes there's always going to be some people who desire and achieve higher levels of attention better reputations than others more power i think part of clout is also the exercise of power like that guy has a lot of clout is to say like that guy has, can pull strings that guy knows a lot of people that people are will influential defer to people with clout yeah so it's not just like whether or not people with clout are like trusted as individuals but also their sort of like position within social networks like you can have a lot of clout and have no one know your name like we can think of clout in terms of popularity and that's like definitely one strong metric of clout mm -hmm. but then also for example if you're really good friends with jeff bezos elon musk donald trump and all these people who can exercise massive amounts of power in the world and they take you very seriously then you have a lot of clout in that instance also yeah it's a different type of clout yeah i think power is a result of reputation in a lot of senses and like if powerful people as you mentioned hold you in high esteem even if you don't have a good reputation with a lot of people powerful people you have a good reputation among them then you get power too but the reason that i don't want to like concede that there's no scarcity here is because i think that this is something that's at least potentially insoluble and something that is always going to be a potential source of conflict between people and it doesn't always have to be like conflict in a super negative sense like i think if everyone is afforded a basic amount of dignity reputation competition would have a much more friendly playful tinge to it like it's like playing video games with your friends more so than being bullied in high school and everybody hating you it's just that like i can completely imagine what a society looks like where everyone has all of their physical needs taken care of like we have the technology already to do that to provide people with food clothing shelter healthcare, education transportation entertainment etc things that are material goods that require production processes to be brought to people we can make enough of that stuff for everyone i think the more and more that our physical needs are taken care of the more our desire for reputation our desire for prestige is going to take center stage if i think about in the dispossessed the book ursula k Le Guin, one of the plot elements of that book is that the main character has this scientific theory that he's trying to write about and get interest in the academic society on their anarchist moon and one of the reasons that he's pretty unsuccessful with that is that all of the people in his field who are above him and older than him have these established views and so aren't being very forthcoming with opportunities for him to express this. The reputation of these established people are representing a sort of social stagnation in the society because even though nobody wants to say it, those people have power in that society and in that field. And the power is 
keeping this person, this main character person from sort of actualizing the ideas that he wants to actualize, even articulating them well, like he's not getting the sort of social support he needs, even though they live in a society where all physical and even like emotional needs are attempted to be taken care of. Like they they have a very well thought out nurturing sort of society going on. But these issues of clashing personalities come up. And when some of the people with clashing personalities have a lot more clout, then they have more power in the situation. And that can cause problems if they're not actually correct or they're not actually doing the right thing. So like, I think to some extent, the reason that clout is so important online is not that everyone who's online has all their material needs taken care of, far from it. But to some extent, in order to sit on the computer, you probably ate food, you're probably wearing clothes, you have an internet connection, like, compared to like, intense poverty, deprivation, like starving to death, things like that, that would totally take your mind off of reputation. But if you aren't starving, and if you do have all your material needs taken care of, what other people think about you, and especially what popular people think about you, if they think about you, takes center stage in your thoughts. And so as we want to move forward into a more utopian future, I think that these concerns about prestige economics, <laughs> reputation economics, are going to be some of the biggest struggles that a utopian society actually faces. Yeah, so if we achieve our utopia, which probably goes without saying, but we're talking about the abolition of patriarchy, the end of racism, a society which takes care of everyone and doesn't have dehumanizing inequality to the level where some are living in a gold-plated pleasure universe and others are without a guarantee of even the opportunity to thrive. A global library society built on the principles of usufruct and ensuring that there is an irreducible minimum that no one falls below that is a guaranteed basic outcome and people spend their time working on projects with their friends and trying to make the world an ever more beautiful place for everyone okay so we achieve that bim bam boom that's done and what you're saying is that within that context without a analysis and taking actions to counteract or acknowledge the existence of social reputation and clout that there's a chance that you could have sort of dystopian social outcomes within the context of total abundance yes and what if you were to predict, how would that take shape? Like there's the example that you gave of having sort of these like reputation elders that then make people self-censor and not achieve their fullest. Is there any other? I'm just sort of thinking out loud, like what is the nightmare that we have these like influencers that are become sort of the de facto leaders? Their healthy desire to be esteemed is corrupted into an unhealthy desire to have a social hierarchy and be above people and be yeah uh, be yeah. in charge in a way that isn't socially beneficial. Yeah, and it's difficult, right? Because there is a really positive side to the idea of clout and the idea of reputation. Like people get positive reputations often, not always because our society has some strange priorities sometimes, but often because they actually did good things or be because they know a lot about a subject. Obviously, we don't want to abolish reputation. We don't want to abolish people leading others because they're good leaders and other people want to follow them and they think that they have good ideas and they want to work with them. The dystopian elements of it, I can see going a few different ways. One of them is the sort of like hidden unspoken hierarchies of social dominance where people sort of unthinkingly defer to certain other people and it's really hard to express yourself or to challenge them as you mentioned this kind of like cold hidden hierarchies beneath the surface there's also the potential dystopia of a sort of super explicit like i was saying earlier that i thought it was good that this idea of cloud is kind of spreading and it's making it explicit and it's making people reflect on the phenomenon. But, you know, making it too explicit 
say counting up clout points and like where people can like see how many clout points you have and it's like the super specific thing and people get certain privileges for having clout points i mean then you're basically talking about money again it's not really a utopia but that that kind of a thing could exist in a world of material abundance it's totally possible like a social credit system of some kind where if you're not popular enough, things in society could be restricted or an opportunity is not given to you because you're a socially undesirable person or something like that. Like there's a lot of horror scenarios if you think about it in a super explicit way. But the main way that I see it going is kind of what's already happening and what's happening online right now. It's like almost playful, but it's also super hurtful. This snarky like reputation battlefield where whether it's as scarce as people like to imagine it is or not, reputation or even just other people's attention is, is a limited resource in a sense. And people not positively competing with each other for that attention in a sort of like joint game where we're all trying to be better and we're egging each other on to being better and you know if I do a bit better than you it's all good and we all have dignity but a battlefield where it's a zero-sum type of competition where you're trying to take other people out in order to raise yourself up, where you are pointing out who the socially undesirable people are and getting them punished in various ways or just socially excluded even as a type of punishment. It is a type of punishment. Just the sorts of social patterns that we're seeing online becoming the norm in society. That's most, that's the dystopian version of it that I'm kind of most worried about. The social credit example sort of gives me pause on the whole argument of it's better for things to be explicit. That by not making a hierarchy explicit, you're ensuring that there's hidden hierarchies which cannot be talked about and so on. Thinking about the, that example in this context of like an explicit social credit system where you can see where everyone stands is the ultimate expression of this logic that yeah. to be explicit is better than implicit. And it makes me think like, oh, actually, maybe it's sometimes better just leave something implicit. And like, it's not to say that we would never, ever talk about the existence of different reputations like it's not to say that there should be a yeah, it should be totally yeah. forbidden to ever acknowledge that one person is very respected or something you right, know like right. well yeah and that is the dystopian anarchism thing it's like no no we're all equal here it's like okay but everyone listens to that person all the time and whenever i disagree with them their lackeys come after me and it's like but we're all equal like can we not talk about that we're all equal so like yeah to me it's like you want some amount of explicitness but there's a real danger to going too explicit with it. And metrics specifically, like numbers, I think can be very dangerous. Like even things like Twitter followers or likes or like notifications. When you get to numbers and like who has more numbers, that's too explicit. Maybe the real problem there isn't the aspiration towards non-hierarchy, but the aspiration to non-hierarchy where people are like religiously devoted to the idea that they've already achieved non-hierarchy and they're unwilling to be reflexive and see the creation of non-hierarchical space is a completed process rather than an ongoing process, right? Like that's, mm. is the issue really like a spectrum from explicit to implicit hierarchy or is the issue an ideology that is reflexive versus one that is like very dogmatic? Yeah, reflexiveness is what I'm calling explicitness in a sense, like... The ability to talk about it. To give some other examples, you could have the anarchist example of, oh, we're all egalitarian here. We're all equals here. So don't admit that Aaron is in charge, even though Aaron is calling all the shots, you know? Right. And then, but you could go to like a capitalist incarnation of this and say, everything is meritocratic here. So don't say that Aaron is in charge for not having merit. We all think that he has the merit. Right. Or like in a communist context. Communist Aaron is our leader because communist Aaron has done the most study of revolutionary history. He's got the deepest understanding of these intractable, deep problems that face us. Yes, there is a hierarchy, but it is, a, in a sense, a meritocratic hierarchy, although we wouldn't use those words because we're good communists. Right. Aaron's the vanguard. Like In all those contexts, the real problem is the dogmatic devotion to upholding the hierarchy as it exists right like in different 
political cultures will have different languages for the syncopants to use to defend the illegitimate hierarchy. Right. And it can happen even with an ideology of anti-hierarchy. One element of what you just said that I found interesting is in those examples, in most of those examples, there was an element of being dishonest about the content of what gives people clout. That's a specific interesting type of dystopia where there are hierarchies and people acknowledge there are hierarchies but the reality of what allows people to move up hierarchies is obscured or lied about that's a disorienting social situation for anyone to be in welcome to keyboard warrior radio theater Daily reminder, clout scores are revolutionary and they are righteous because by decommodifying what's valued in our society and explicitly assigning points based on your social reputation, we are taking a death blow against the totalizing neoliberal logic, the commodification of everything. Who let this handmaiden of neoliberalism into the group? It's hilarious to me that you think taking social interactions and assigning them a specific numerical value is the opposite of commodification when assigning specific numerical dollar and cents values to material goods is what commodification is. And so what you're proposing is not a challenge to the pervasive logic of neoliberalism. It's an expansion of the logic of neoliberalism into the realm of reputation, where currently, thankfully, we don't rack up the most dollars and cents. Oh, sorry, excuse me. Clout points in their bank account. Oh, wait, sorry, excuse me. Their clout meter. This isn't a leftist position. This isn't even a centrist position. This is a fascist, far-right position. L-M-A-O. Just for clarification, the ha-ha react I gave you was not because your post was very humorous. I was laughing at you and your baby's first politics ideas. But everyone has to start somewhere, so maybe I'll explain to you in good faith, brackets, unlike some people in this thread, under the current system, those who have the most money are the most powerful. There's nothing that can challenge that except for a points-based system where we measure empirically the social contributions of members of this society. Note, I said social. One of the key problems with capitalism is that it does not distribute money and capital rationally according to people's desirable or undesirable behavior, and there are often perverse incentives. It's you, my friend, that is the handmaiden of neoliberalism. It's you, my friend, that is the crypto-fascist. One quick point of clarification. I didn't say you were a crypto-fascist. I said you were a fascist. Nothing crypto about it. You're on main. If we're going to be leftists, that means being anti-capitalist. So that means being against the power of accumulated capital, and it means being against the power of accumulated social capital. Just because you put the word social in front of it doesn't make it not capital and doesn't make it not capitalism, i.e. neoliberalism, i.e. what you are a handmaiden for. Perhaps unwittingly, but I strongly suspect wittingly and on purpose. Look, this is the ultimate challenge to capitalism and neoliberalism, and I pity the handmaiden that can't see that. Brackets, that's you. Ha 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 ha. I always laugh so, so hard, genuinely, whenever I see such an obvious handmaiden of neoliberalism trying to push the truth of what they are off onto someone else. Ha 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 ha, lol. It's so funny the way that handmaidens always accuses other people of being handmaidens. I'll never get tired of sincerely laughing at that. What are you doing? Are you just repeating me now? Handmaiden, please. I was just looking through all your pictures and it turns out you're not physically attractive. What a big surprise, handmaiden. I'm sorry, is someone posting here? I have a rare disorder where I can't read the posts of handmaidens of capitalism. Although I did recently visit the handmaiden of neoliberals 
profile and look at all of their profile pictures. And here's an unflattering one I found. And we'll see you next time for another episode of Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater. We've been talking in terms of a reputation economy. And one of the big insights that I've gotten from listening to thinkers from the sphere of social ecology specifically, but ecology more broadly, one of the things that Bookchin railed against in a bunch of his polemical speeches was the totalizing logic of capitalism infecting the metaphors we use to discuss things that have nothing to do with the market economy, where you buy into something, you know, or um, to, to start a relationship is to make an investment in the future. And he was totally disgusted by that idea that you would commodify human relations enough where you're talking about maybe the most significant social relationship in your life, a pair bond, a long-term relationship, to frame that in terms of an investment that's going to mature, this capitalist logic of, it implies all this weird stuff then about love. It implies all this weird stuff about trying to find someone with good earning potential because you want to buy a big house and or whatever, you know? like. Right. And honestly, Bookchin cared way more about that stuff than I do. It's pretty funny how much he cared about it. But an insight that I got from, I think it was Dan Chodakoff, the co-founder of the Institute for Social Ecology with Murray Bookchin. I think he said... There's no limit to the ecological metaphor. We can expand the ecological metaphor into human relations and it will improve the clarity of our discussions. So I I took that idea, percolated on a bit, and the first really big fish that I caught with that hook was it's not a free market of ideas, it's an ecosystem of ideas. And if you think about the free market of ideas discussion that people have about like competing different ideas and fighting each other and all this stuff like that. It is really tied up in the market logic of like, oh, I'm going to meet you in a battle dome of ideas and defeat you. That's how the market of ideas wins or more people are going to buy my idea than yours. So your idea will go out of business. You have your little idea stand or you're going around your door to door idea salesman. You're like, hey, do you want to buy my ideas? You give them the pitch. They either buy the ideas or don't. The people whose ideas never get bought go out of business. And those ideas die out the people whose ideas get bought a lot people start selling those ideas to their friends yeah it's like a multi-level marketing scheme for ideas <laughs> you know, like a really convincing marxism salesman comes to your door and you're like no what i think there's really something to sorry how many yards of linen i'm in yeah i love marxism and then you set up a little marxism party all your friends come over and look at the marxist tupperware and you're like this is only this this is this right. um anyways the... <laughs> so that same point I want to make here about maybe thinking in terms of a reputation ecology is a more productive frame for an egalitarian end than a reputation economy. And maybe, maybe all this weird shit we're talking about, about social hierarchy, where there isn't a guarantee that people are going to have dignity within this context of differential popularity and differential influence and differential power, is all downstream from the logic of capitalism being better than our idea of reputation. And maybe we can frame break that and counter signal that and say a reputation ecology is going to be a more useful frame for building that good clout system. If we're talking about designing how a positive social reputation ecology can work in a future society, I think one of the most important elements you have to talk about is what gives people clout and what doesn't give people clout. Because again, clout, reputation, these things are aspects of human social interaction that I don't think are going away. But I think what's more important is, do you get clout for giving $5 to a homeless person? Do you get clout for inventing a new vaccine? In our society now, there's mismatched versions of what brings people clout in that some of them are socially beneficial and some of them aren't socially beneficial. But I think the content of what gives people clout is actually pretty malleable socially. So if we are aware enough and conscious enough about our own actions and the actions of other people, we can have a set of social values shared amongst the population where clout is given for things that are actually socially beneficial. And and at the same time, when you're doing this, you can also protect against a lot of the negative manifestations of clout by having those things be things that 
reduce your clout. So for example, if you try to become super popular by taking someone else, trying to knock them out, take all their coins, if that doesn't work because everyone else is like, hey, that was a mean thing to do. Like, yeah, they made a mistake, but it doesn't mean that I think you're cooler because you noticed it and pointed it out in a snarky, mean way. That actually makes me think less of you. Yeah, yeah. The cruelty that you embedded in that point has degraded the quality of the information that you're conveying, which I acknowledge is valuable information and is appreciated, but you really undermine the fidelity of your critique by including this bizarre cruelty. What and culture that, do you come from where the cruelty like that's normal? Yeah, because having reputation is so important to people that they will not do socially unbeneficial things if they don't help people's reputation. So then it's a kind of chicken and egg scenario where you're trying to get ahead of the shift in these values and like changing people's ideas. And that's how you change history, change people's ideas. That's how you change social systems, how you change everything. So yeah, that's my main thought that in addition to meeting people's material needs, that having a utopian social reputation ecology is mostly dependent on the content of what brings and what takes reputation away. I think also there's a tendency sometimes with some people to say, oh, once we handle the economic problems, once we handle the distribution problems, well, everything's going to be smooth sailing after that because people are going to be so comfortable, their best side is going to come out and all that stuff. And that might be true to a limited degree. But we need to also confront the social realm itself. And I think like this is a failure of like brochialism in the most pejorative sense uh, where you're saying tackle class first, everything else is going to fall into place. Right. And I think it's certainly true that tackling class is going to have positive impacts for women, positive impacts for people who are racialized and excluded from the benefits of white supremacy in society. But at the same, like you do need to tackle both the economic and the social realm and the clout cult stuff. We do need to push back against the idea that everything will just fall into place if you handle the basics. Yeah. It's a cascading series of things that need to be challenged, and we're going to find new ways to talk and think about them and new frontiers, new horizons to push for ever more utopian outcomes. Yeah, I think it's a blind spot of the left frequently, not always. It comes to something that we kind of like playfully poke at Marxists about all the time, which is the materialism, idealism distinction. And we're like, idealism is true and ideas move history. I think I even said it in this recording already. It's a theme that we return to a lot, not because material things don't matter. Obviously, changing the material ways that people relate to each other in society is incredibly important. It totally. And the base is dominant to the superstructure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 60-40. Well, yeah, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Generally 60-40, but every now and then, the superstructure really calls the shots. Yeah, yeah. But but then the, the problem is like focusing entirely on the base, saying that like the superstructure will just be determined by the base and that if we have socialist economics in place, the realms of human social interaction, the realms of human psychology, everything will just fall into place. People will become better, the new communist people in the new society. It just happens because we take care of everyone materially. And I don't think that's true. There's an element of truth to it because having your material needs unmet is psychologically devastating or can be psychologically devastating to people. But these are issues that do need to be addressed on their own terms. And people can have all their material needs taken care of and have a dearth of positive human social interaction, a dearth of meaning in their life, of feeling that there's a purpose to what they're doing, of feeling like they belong in society. And we should all be able to agree on that. And now for scenes from potential clout utopias. Our first clout utopia, a universe in which the best way to gain clout is by mangling the rhetoric of social justice into incomprehensible hot takes. My dog requires so much emotional labor from me. I just want to put it in its kennel and squirt ketchup and mustard all over I, I, it. I gotta stop you there. This emotional labor 
centric discourse is just a reification of labor normative holistic supremacy. Are you seriously erasing painters right now from your analysis? I think the only erasing that is going on here is you're erasing your clear complicity in labor normative holistic supremacy. And now we go to a universe where doing the Macarena the best is what gets you the most clout. Oh, nice one. Thanks, yeah, I'm working on it. Did you see Michael trying to do the Macarena earlier? <laughs> Such an idiot. The way that he flipped his hands from hands down to hands up, there's no flow to it at all. I mean, we shouldn't laugh. His Macarena score is so low, he's not allowed to ride planes. Yeah, but I mean, it's got to be like that. That's the way we've always done it. Michael, he may be captain of the football team, but those big, beefy, annoying arms just can't do the fluid motions of the world's most interesting dance. Our next utopian clout society is a clout society in which the best way to gain clout is by eating the spiciest food imaginable. I'm going to take a tiny tip of this hot stuff. Oh, it's so hot. Mm. Oh, you can't handle it? Here, watch your master. Oh my god. Wow, you're so cool. You're crying and sweating and you look like a mess. This is amazing. That's so cool. I think I'm going to vomit. Oh, oh, if you vomit, it doesn't water, count. Water, water, water. Ah, it's worse. Ah. Are you running for office? I would vote for you for president. And now a utopia work. The best way to get clout is by having a perfectly medium-sized penis. Did you see they just changed the official medium from 5.04932 to 5.04939? Guess who's a little bit closer to the medium? You. Me. Yeah. What are you, 5.6? 5.602, yeah. I feel like such a disgusting dongoloid with my 8-incher. Yeah, you know, don't worry about it. Some people are genetically gifted, and some people have gigantimus or whatever that disease is. It's called when you have a big penis. Well, man, one of these days, us big guys are going to team up with the small guys, and then we're going to team up with just people out there who don't even have penises. They're completely excluded from this system. That's not right. So we're all going to team up. We're going to take you guys down. Yeah, we've heard this rhetoric before. The mediums have always ruled. The mediums will always rule. Bigs and smalls are just like oil and water. They don't mix. They can't team up. And they'll always stay separate, alone, and most importantly, at the bottom of the social hierarchy. Yeah, you're right. What's an idiot dongoloid like me going to be able to achieve in this world? And now we go to the final clout utopia of the episode, where clout runs everything, but it's totally under the radar. Nobody acknowledges it exists, and it's kind of, you don't talk about it. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Should there be like a clout ceiling, like maximum clout? Like you would have a maximum wage in an ethical society? Yeah, I don't know how you would do that. Prevent someone from getting more popular? Like, oh, this person's getting very popular. We're going to have to stop them from doing things so that nobody else notices them or like artificially limit the amount that they're tweets are going out or like whatever the amount of people watching their show that everyone likes it's i don't know how you do that yeah no no in order to do this we would need a more radical break a more fundamental break than any of those things we don't want to be associating clout with numbers that's dystopian we don't want to say oh we're going to limit their numbers because they have too much clout it needs to be a more fundamental cultural change about not having cultural room for people to be up on such a pedestal Right. Like the same way that there's a level that no one should fall below the irreducible minimum guaranteed basic outcome. There should be a level that no one can go above. I think it's just about people's relationship to cloud and how they think about it. And it's like the kind of like, when does respect turn into hero worship, turn into sort of blind admiration that is unbeneficial? There's a gradient there. And at some point you want to call it a line and say, like, you know, our society thinks that that kind of hero worship to that degree is bad. And when people do that, we generally be like, oh, you know, that's unpreferable. You know, maybe think about some of their flaws. You know, they're a great person for sure, but here's some of their flaws. Yeah, they do have some flaws. Maybe, yeah, you know, like, Mm. (laughs) yeah, I was thinking about some way of like stopping them from being more popular, but it's not that. It's just like changing the way that people relate to popular people and yeah, not having what yeah. does it mean to be popular? I yeah, think is the yeah. the substance of, of a, uh, a maximum yeah. 
clout ceiling is it's not oh only three million people are allowed to think you're awesome it's <laughs> it's that we have a cultural understanding that when someone's awesome they're still a person right and right. they're, they're yeah. not they're not above us yeah if they ask you to come be their footrest and just like get down on all fours in front of you so they can put their feet up you would say no that's dehumanizing i just do that with my wife <laughs> and that's because it brings us both pleasure it's not and it's agreed <laughs> upon ahead of time <laughs> And yeah, yeah, I want to be a footrest for my wife sometimes. Is that allowed? Yeah, it is allowed. Thank you. And that's the Seriously Wrong Podcast, everyone. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening this week. We are your human footstools on hands and knees in front of you for you to rest your feet on for this hour that you listen to the show. And we'll be back again next week to do it again. So if you like our show, if you could review us on iTunes, Stitcher, and any place that you get podcasts that is really, really useful for us and helping to reach more ears, tell your friends about the show, tweet, Facebook about it. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, uh, where we post some stuff sometimes. It's good. It's worth checking out. Um, and like we mentioned before, uh, we have a Patreon. It's the way that the show is able to exist um, without it. Uh, frankly, at this point, we would have moved on to other projects. <laughs> but I'm really glad that we're still doing it. It's the, it's my favorite thing in my life. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, me too. <laughs> it's just a lot of work. It's like I put in full-time hours for all these episodes. There's a lot of editing. It takes a lot of time and energy and effort. And I just wouldn't be able to do it if I wasn't getting some money for it. So thank you to all the people who are donating. And thank you to everyone who just made the decision to join them. We'll see you soon. We love you. Not in a weird way. Normal way. Normal way to love someone you've never met. Unless I met you, then I love you in the way that you love someone that you have met appropriately. Always appropriate. We're always appropriate with the amount of love we give. And that's final thoughts for the week. So Nothing weird about this that. This can be right, right? Next time on Seriously Wrong, the wrong boys get a Hollywood phone number. We have a new phone number. Its area code is... 818. You might have heard of it. It's kind of a famous area code. When we tried to buy a new voicemail line, we couldn't get a, a Vancouver one. So we opted for the place where left-wing politics comes from, Hollywood. We're going Hollywood. You can reach us, leave a message, and hey, maybe even sometime we'll pick it up. Who knows? 1-818-824-6081. That is a place where you can leave a message with your voice. We may or may not play on the show. We may or may not ask you questions ahead of time to answer via this line. Again, that's 818-824-6081. Add it to your phone if you don't mind. So it's a few hours later. You know, it's wrong to take advantage of people. It's wrong to take advantage of people who have big dreams. Looking at you, Microsoft Corporation. Sell them a false promise of a Hollywood number Yeah, that comes with a voicemail. Yeah, we had stars in our eyes. We were sold a Hollywood dream. We were sold, and we fell for it hook, line, and sinker. So that when Microsoft sold us this Hollywood number, it, it said, said voicemail, voicemail included. included. You know, what do you think of when you think of a voicemail being included? You want to be able to receive voicemail yeah. at a number. At a number. And, and before you leave the message... People will hear you saying, hey, wrong boys, Hollywood voicemail. <sighs> Imagine being able to do that. We'd put a little music under it. Yeah, it would have it, been such a nice Hollywood voicemail. And it would be so nice of Microsoft Corporation to specify includes a broken half-life version of voicemail where a strange computer voice being the like the person whom you're trying to reach is currently unavailable please leave a message after the beep do you know why they're doing this it's because now the ability to customize your skype voicemail is tied into their office 365 product yeah this is the real kicker so if you want to have a custom voicemail that says, you know, you got a little bit of surfing music playing or whatever, you know, and it's like, oh, it's the Hollywood voicemail. Thanks for calling. <laughs> you reached us here in scenic Hollywood, 818. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> if you want to do that, we'd actually have to pay $8 a month for Office. Microsoft Word and yeah. Excel and the whole Microsoft suite. It was really deceptive. I'm like really shocked that they would strongly imply by the nature of using the term voicemail. Like this should actually be challenged in court or something. Yeah, like, like you go look up support things and it's like you used to be able to do that, but we took it away. So it's not even like it was just never implemented. It's like, no, 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 no. Skype had this. It was part of voicemail because Skype before Microsoft owned it understood what voicemail means. And then Skype sold themselves to Microsoft and Microsoft is like, hmm, how can we pump these fools for more cash, these small business owners who are already locked into the Skype ecosystem? And they're like, oh, let's make their voicemail technically useless because what business wants, you've reached a voicemail. Is currently unavailable. Every call is like, uh, I'm not sure if I reached the right place, but if this is Jim, your mother's really sick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's ridiculous. So yeah, the Hollywood voicemail thing. That just it's a lesson about Hollywood dreams. They don't often work out. Like that's kind of the story of Hollywood. So fuck you, Microsoft Corporation. Sincerely, the wrong boys. But you can still call that Hollywood voicemail because another thing Microsoft does is not offer refunds on impulse Hollywood numbers or any numbers. Uh, thank you for listening to the show. And don't soon forget what Microsoft Corporation did to these two starry-eyed boys with Hollywood dreams. I like legit got grifted by Microsoft today. Like they know what they're doing. There's no, they're, they're like, what? You thought voicemail included? No. Oh my gosh, that's so embarrassing. Eight dollars. It's fucked up. Yeah. It's messed up. Yep. Should we come back again and we've decided to pay the eight dollars? <laughs> you know what? We're just gonna keep our head down and we're gonna do the voice where it's worth it. Mm. I mean it's still cheaper than what we paid before. Yeah, so it's thirteen seventy five a month and it looks like it doesn't charge for minutes and you get Microsoft Office. <laughs> <laughs> No, you're trying to sell me on this thing. <laughs> we came back, we decided it's actually... You know what? You got us. You got... It's okay, you got us, but we figured it out. Mathematically, it's like, you know what? It's actually an affordable cost for the whole voicemail thing, and I guess just like thousands of small business owners that you really ripped off in 2017, <laughs> uh, we will ultimately submit to your demands. Such sneaky, sneaky stuff. Not soon forgiven, Microsoft. <laughs> But yeah, I'm paying it indefinitely now. <laughs> <laughs>